Would you open your Bible, please? The book of Genesis, chapter 37. Genesis, chapter 37. And last week, I spoke to you on the subject, the man with the great attitude, Daniel. And today, I speak to you on the subject, the man with the great attitude, Joseph. And so we're just changing characters, but we're staying on the same subject. Next week, it's going to be the man with the great attitude, ah, X, question mark. I'll tell you next Sunday morning, okay? But uh, the man with the great attitude, number two, is Joseph. And we have our Bible open to Genesis 37. In 1952, there was a man in New York City who was a preacher. His name was Dr. Norman Vincent Peale. Dr. Peale wrote a self-help book that was entitled The Power of Positive Thinking. That book has sold, I didn't look up the number, but it's multiplied tens of millions of copies. It was probably the first well-known of what we now call today self-help material. In the book, if you read it, and I've read it, and it's a good book, I would certainly recommend it to people. It tells the story of people who came to a point in their life, they realized that their own attitude was their own adversary. And so they worked to change their own attitudes, and they changed them from negative thinking, as Dr. Peel introduced that term probably to our country. They changed from negative thinking to positive thinking. And the book tells how it brought them success in life, depending upon their various positions in life. Dr. Norman Vincent Peale believed it was possible for people to achieve a permanent and optimistic and positive attitude no matter what happened, no matter what situation people fell fell into in life. And I agree with about 95 or 7% of Dr. Peale's book. I've read it more than once. However, there is one weakness and the power of positive thinking. And that is, positive thinking can only do what man can do. It is humanistic. It's limited by the person who's doing the positive thinking. And though I like the book and would recommend it, I would remind you that anything that is man-centered has its limitations. No matter how positive your attitude may be, you can't jump out the wind and fly. No matter how positive your attitude may be, it it won't roll back the laws of nature. But we know that there is a power even greater than the power of positive attitude. And we're going to look at that and see it today in the life of this Bible hero named Joseph. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word this morning? Genesis chapter number 37, and I begin at the first verse. And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, remember that, was feeding the flock with his brothers And the lad was with the sons of Billah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, 
His father had four wives during his lifetime, and so he was with two of his father's wives' children or his stepbrothers. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. So he was sort of a tattletale here. He came and told dad about something bad that was happening in the life of these brothers. Now, Israel, another name for Jacob. So let's remember who we're talking about here, his father. Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. He had 11 brothers and a sister. He loved Joseph the most because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all of his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And he dreamed a dream. And he told it to his brothers, and they hated him yet the more. He said unto them, Here I pray you, this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves out in the field in the harvest time, and lo, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance or bowed down to my sheaf. This did not go well with his brothers. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shall thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. Note, they hated him for his dreams. And he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers or his brethren and said, Behold, I've dreamed a dream more. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him. He thought he had a haughty attitude. And he said to him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come and bow down ourselves to thee in the earth? But verse 11 is a strange verse. His brethren envied him, but his father observed. He thought about. He couldn't get out of his mind the saying, the dream that he had dreamed. In other words, he knew there was a special significance to the fact that this man was having these dreams. Thank you, and you may be seated. The man with a great attitude, Joseph. In fact, I would say it a little differently. Point number one, the man with a godly positive attitude, not just a positive attitude, the man with a godly positive attitude. And so we see him as a slave. His brother, if you'll keep your Bibles open there, we'll use them quite a bit here for a few minutes. In chapter 39 and verse 1, his brothers had sold him to a caravan that was coming through as they were out in the field and thought nobody would ever find out about it. You know this story probably. And then the caravan of slave traders, the Ishmaelites, they sold him again. They sold him to a man named Potiphar, who was a high-ranking Egyptian military officer. And Potiphar bought him as a common slave to serve in his house and take care of the household affairs for him. Can you imagine what it would be like to be 17 years old, yanked up one day suddenly 
as you were out in the field keeping sheep with your brothers, and they had conspired against you, and they sell you to this caravan of Ishmaelites who are coming through on their way to Egypt. And they manhandle you and treat you awfully, and then they take you down to Egypt, and they sell you again. At 17 years old, twice he had been sold like a piece of meat or like an animal. Here he is, 17 years old. He has no rights. He has no freedom. He can't make a decision, do anything he wants to do. He has, uh, he has a life of toil, a life of hard labor before him. He can't think and do his own thing at all. He can't exercise his talents and his gifts. He's on his own alone in a foreign country, and he's doing what they tell him. They own him. He is a slave. His dreams now are dead that he had when he was a boy back home. Pretty bleak situation. I would say if there ever was a man who lived in history who had a reason to be bitter, who had a reason to be negative, who had a reason to be depressed, it probably was Joseph in the circumstances he was in a menial slave far away from home in Egypt, his life in the control of someone else. Chapter 39 and verse 2, but the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. Boy, there's a, there is a statement that makes all the difference in the world, doesn't it? The Lord was with Joseph, and it even adds he was a prosperous man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And in verse 3, in case you didn't get it the first time, his master saw that the Lord was with him a second time in two verses. And that the Lord made everything that this man did prosper in his hand. And so we see that the master observed that this man was different. This man's spirit was different. His attitude was different. His demeanor, his countenance was different from all the other people. This man had the presence of the Lord upon his life. The Lord was with him. In verse 4, he makes him the overseer of his home. In verse 4, it says he found grace in Potiphar's sight. In verse 4, it says that he served him. He didn't it, it, it has the idea of him being diligent in, in his duties. And he puts him over his entire house. He gives him authority over the entire household. No doubt he had other slaves and he had family members and an extended family possibly. And he puts Joseph in charge of things because he'll be away with the army. And in verse 5, we notice something else. It came to pass from that time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Jacob's sake. In other words, not only did God bless Joseph, he blessed other people around him because of his presence in the life of Joseph. In other words, last week I told you that we as Christians should have this aroma about us. Like going in the room where somebody's had on very, very strong perfume, and they've left the room, but there is an aroma there. There's a smell there. 
And in the same way, we who are God's people, we ought to have this aroma of the Lord Jesus Christ about us, that even when we're not present, that the people who are with us, that they sense the Lord's presence because we have been there. Look in chapter 39 again in verse number 7. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, meaning he had great faith in his integrity, in his character. He could be fully trusted. In fact, he didn't even know what he had, save the bread that he ate. He sat down to the table, and he wasn't even keeping up with the affairs of his home. He trusted so much in this man, Joseph, and Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. And so here he is serving as a slave. But things come to a sad end here, verse 7. It came to pass after this that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said unto him, lie with me. And so she tried to seduce him. His master's wife attempted to seduce this good-looking, strong, young uh, uh, man that was serving as a slave in their home. And you know the story of how he refused. I don't have time to read the whole account. But this man, facing tremendous temptation, no doubt with a beautiful woman, he turned her down. He said, absolutely not. I can't do that. The Lord would not want me to do that. And so we see this attitude emerging in him of a godly man with strong, strong convictions about right and wrong. Well, when he turned her down, it hurt her pride, and she accused him of attempting to rape her. And she brings this allegation to her husband and to others there, and he's thrown into prison. Look in chapter 39 and verse 20. Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. But notice, now Joseph, not as a slave, but Joseph as a prisoner. And in verse 20, it said, or in 21, the Lord was with him. Nothing has really changed. And the Lord showed him mercy with the officials of the prison. He gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. In fact, they made him what we today call a trustee at a prison. He is one of the prisoners who has earned the respect and trust of the, prison, uh, the uh, keepers of the prison. And they basically put him in charge of the affairs in the prison. And so once again, as a slave, he's elevated to be the overseer of the man's home. Now, as a prisoner, he's elevated to be the keeper of the prison. He's in charge of the other prisoners. He's elevated to leadership, as it were. And whatever they did in the prison, of course, he was the one who was uh, in charge of things. In verse 22, we learn how trustworthy he is, his integrity again. And it wasn't easy being in that prison. Real quickly, let me read to you, and you might want to turn with me to Psalm 105, where it tells us a little bit about life in the prison for Joseph. And in Psalm 105, we look here at verse number 17, and it says, He sent a man before them, even Joseph, referring to this time in the life of the nation of Israel. He sent a man, Joseph, who was sold for a servant or a slave. Now, here's the verse I want you to see. Whose feet they hurt with fetters, and he was laid in iron. Now, you 
probably have like I have a center column reference Bible. And if you go over to the center, mine has a little notation there. He was laid in iron. It's an, it's an optional rendering that the translators of the King James Bible put there to help us understand the phrase more. And so it says the phrase, he was laid in iron, means his soul entered into the iron. In other words, he suffered tremendously. He went through agony of soul. He was tested in every way conceivable, but God used that testing to put iron into his soul, to make him strong, to make this man a man of deep convictions, a man of power that he could use no matter what he did in life. And in prison, you know the story of two officials, two former government officials came now to the prison. Pharaoh had put both of them in the prison, and they both had dreams. We're back to dreams. You see, dreams are a vital part of the life of Joseph, and it's important that you and I understand something about the dreams here. The dreams, in those days, there was no written Word of God. This is early, early in the revelation of God. This is not too long after the Tower of Babel and the flood and all that early history that we know in the Scripture. And so here we see God speaking to people through dreams, not through a written revelation, but God spoke to these people through dreams. He spoke to Abraham with dreams. Now he's speaking to Joseph. This is God speaking to him. It was God who showed him when he was 17 years old that he would lead his family, and his whole family would come and bow down before him, which they did later on. And it was God showing him that that sun, the moon, and the stars bowing down to worship him would be his mother and father and brothers who would come and make obeisance to him as the leader of the great nation of Egypt. And God was showing him that early on. That's why it says his father thought about these things there that I pointed out to you a moment ago. And now in prison, these two men come and say, we've had a dream. Can you interpret it? And uh, he did. And one of them, he said, you're going to die. I've got bad news. The other guy said, I've got good news for you. You're going to be lifted up to a prominent position. And then they left the prison. He never saw them again. One day, though, the Pharaoh had a dream. And the Pharaoh couldn't find anybody in all the land of Egypt who could interpret his dream. And then suddenly that official that was in the prison said, hey, hold on a minute. There was a guy who interpreted my dreams when I was in prison. His name is Joseph. And so they went and got him. He's still languishing away. He's been in jail now 10 or 12 years, it would appear. Chapter number 41 and verse number 38 now. 37. The thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants, so they sent and got Joseph out of the prison. Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this man? Mark it in your Bible, a man in whom the Spirit of God is. A man in whom the Spirit of God is. I want to tell you that everything that Joseph did in his life He did it in the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit of God. 
I also want to tell you that anything that we do that will last for eternity, it will be because of the work of the Spirit of God in us. That Lord Jesus Christ said, without me, you can do nothing referring to the power of God upon our lives. Anything we do without the Spirit of God is temporary. It's passing. It is only what is done in the power and the anointing of the Holy Spirit that will last. And it was obvious. It stood out to people. This man has the Spirit of God in him. The Pharaoh could even say it. Do you know what's interesting about this? That he uses the word here, God, capital G, and it's the Hebrew word Elohim. It's the same word used in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 for the Creator God, translated sometimes Almighty God. And he looks at Joseph and he says, this man of all the men in Egypt at this time has the spirit of the Elohim, the true God of Israel, the God who created the heavens and the earth, the Almighty God in him. Not one of the gods that they worship, the fly god or the, the frog god and all that stuff that they worship down in Egypt. No, this, is, this man has a different spirit. He has a different attitude. He has the spirit of the almighty God, the creator God in him. I want you to notice something now. Joseph never changed throughout his lifetime. From a 17-year-old boy to a slave to a prisoner, and now he is elevated second to the Pharaoh, the prime minister of the country, and yet he's the same all the way through. You know why? Because his attitude was what it ought to be. His spirit was what it ought to be. And notice in chapter 45 and verse 14, you know the story of how he's there because his brothers have sold him into slavery. But is he bitter and unforgiving with them? Chapter 45 and verse 5, he says now to his brothers who've come down to Egypt to buy food, therefore be not grieved. Don't be angry with yourselves that you sold me into slavery. Here, underline it in your Bible. God did send me before you to preserve life. God had a plan, and though it made me be bound in fetters of iron, and iron entered into my soul, though it cost me 12 years of my life in jail, though it cost me false accusations by Potiphar's wife, even through all of that, it was the sovereign plan of God working in my life so that I could save your lives. By the way, they bowed down to him that day because he was now the prime minister, second in command in Egypt. And then they brought his old father down. And look at him. Look at his spirit is what I'm wanting you to see. The forgiving spirit to his brothers. He wasn't seeking revenge. He could have spoken one word, and they would have taken all, the, all 11 of those brothers out. But he never said one word of revenge to them. His forgiving spirit. I want you to notice his loving spirit. Chapter 46 and verse 29. And Joseph made ready his chariot. And he went up to meet Israel, his father, to Goshen, part of the land of Egypt. And he presented himself unto him. And Joseph fell on his neck 
and wept on his neck a good while. And his dad said, okay, now let me die because I've seen your face and because you're yet alive. I thought you were dead, but you're alive. And so he's, I see the tenderness and the love, the spirit of forgiveness toward his brothers who have treated him so, so very wrong, and the spirit of love toward his daddy who had looked all of his life for him that he might see his boy one more time. Joseph as a slave, Joseph as a prisoner, Joseph as the prime minister, and he never changed. Let me summarize something about his life from where I began. Joseph didn't go through all that he went through because he had, had read the power of positive thinking. He made it through what he knew to be true because he had the power of positive godly thinking. He had an attitude that was excellent and superior to almost anyone you could think of. And how did he keep that good attitude? Go with me over to chapter number 50 now. Let's look at one more verse, perhaps one of the best-known verses in this account, Genesis 50 and 20. He now gathers his brother. His dad has died. His brothers are afraid now he's going he's to take revenge on them and kill them because they mistreated him so badly when they were young. And he goes before them, and he says, you don't need to fear me anymore. But look at verse 18. His brethren went in and fell down before him, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. The dream at 17 is now fulfilled, isn't it? And Joseph said to them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? My, what a great spirit. What a great attitude. I'm not to judge you. I'm not God. And then this great, great verse. As for you, you thought evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring to pass as it is this day to save as much people as possible. How did Joseph keep the right attitude? Now, look up here at me, and don't anybody miss this. How did he keep the right attitude, such a wonderful attitude and spirit, as a slave, as a prisoner, as the prime minister, through all the times when iron entered into his soul, he was tribulated beyond comprehension. How did he make it through all of that with the right spirit? Genesis 15, 20, mark it in your Bible. He, he knew that God was in control. He knew that no matter what happened in his life, God was directing the affairs of his life. In other words, he knew that God was sovereign. God is in charge of my life. And though I am sold as a slave, though I'm in prison for 12 years, though now I have the responsibilities of the whole nation upon me, and my 11 brothers stand here thinking that I'm going to exert revenge upon them, no, I'm not going to do that because, you see, God was using all those negative circumstances to bring to pass salvation for the entire nation of Israel. Now, having said that, let me make some applications. You see, your attitude and my attitude can be the most valuable asset that we have. So guard it. Think of your attitude like you think of Joseph's attitude here. It was his spirit, his attitude, his Christ-likeness that got him through all of the 
tough times that he faced in life. And that was his most valuable asset, I promise you. And it's my most valuable asset. Guard my attitude. Chuck Swindoll said, quote, your attitude is more important than your past, more important than your education, than your money, than your circumstances, than what other people think or say or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, or a home. We cannot change our past. We cannot change the fact that people will act in a certain way. We cannot change the inevitable. The only thing we can do is play on the one string that we have, and that string is our attitude. I am convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. Now, stop. Think with me about that last line that Chuck Swindoll said. I'm convinced that life is 10% what happens to me and 90% of how I react to it. So today, as I speak to you, what's going on in your life? And it's not what goes on, it's our reaction to it, isn't it? Hmm? Boy, you are quiet this morning. You are very, very quiet this morning. It's not what happens to me. It's how I react to what happens to me. Zig Ziglar's another uh, self-help writer. He was from South Carolina, by the way. And Zig Ziglar said, your attitude and not your aptitude is what determines your altitude. Boy, I like that, don't you? That's a common thing now. I think everybody's heard that. But you know what? It's your attitude, not your aptitude, your gifts and talents that will determine how high you go. Notice something about old Joseph here. He rose to the top in his family. He rose to the top when he was a slave. He was over the whole household. He rose to the top when he's in prison. They entrusted the whole prison to him. He rose to the top of the entire nation, second only to Pharaoh. His attitude, not his aptitude, determined how high he went, his altitude. Somebody said the army of Israel gathered, and old Goliath came out, and they challenged everybody, send a champion down here, send some man down here to fight me. And he ridiculed them. I'll feed his flesh to the buzzards, he boasted as he walked up and down. The whole army was intimidated and cowed by him. And somebody said, everybody in that army said, he's too big to kill. And little David came along and said, no, he's too big to miss. And so the attitude determines what we do in life so often, so many times. But our attitude can not only be our greatest asset, our attitude can also be our greatest liability, can't it? So let's be honest with ourselves. Let's do a little attitude check. I have to check mine. I'll tell you what, mine gets out of whack in about 30 seconds sometimes. 
And I have to go back, and sometimes I have to confess my sin, and sometimes I have to do some correction. Learn to recognize when your attitude is souring, and you need to do a little check on it. You know, there's a few things that people don't realize they have the problem. Bad breath and body odor. The guy who has it's the last one to find out. Even his wife don't want to tell him, honey, you stink. You know, that, you know, no relation can stand too much of that, right? And nobody wants to say our attitude stinks. And so probably we're going to have to learn to see that ourselves and say, you know what? I don't have the Spirit of the Lord in me or about me. And I'm going to have to do an attitude check myself. You know, my attitude largely, largely determines my relationship with other people. It largely determines my, ad, my relationship with others. My wife and I, we've been married a long time, but still our attitude can change our relationship with my children with the people that I work with, the people that I pastor. Oh, it's so important. It's so important. My attitude can be my most valuable asset, and it can be my most heavy liability. Joseph maintained that great Christ-like spirit throughout his entire lifetime. I'd also remind you it's possible to change our attitude. You see, attitudes are habits of thought, a way of thinking that we fall into, and we fall into it, and it's like we got into a groove, and we can't get out of the groove unless we are very intentional in dealing with our attitudes and our spirits. And we don't like to change. People resist change. We're going through a lot of change right now as a ministry, as a church, and we've had staff changes and Sunday school changes, and we got five construction projects going on around here this summer, and we've got all kinds of things getting ready to change seasons and start a new school year, and there's change, change, change going on around here everywhere. And you know what I found out through the years? The only people that like to be changed at the Baptist temple are wet babies. And other than the people down there in the preschool, nobody else here wants to be changed. They want to keep going right on the groove they've been going on. Don't fix it if, if it ain't broke, preacher. Well, sometimes it's broke. It may not appear like that from where you sit, but sometimes it's broke and it needs adjusting. And, and we got to work that our attitudes are always the attitude of old, old Joseph here. You know, there's some um, attitude killers. There's some attitude killers. Have you ever been around people who are toxic? They're just poisonous. Their attitude, their spirit. You get around them and, man, you can't handle it. Toxic people. You know who the toxic people in Joseph's life were? Well, first of all, it was his family. We don't want to admit that about our family, do we? But he has, his brothers, they were jealous of him, and then they hated him. They tried to kill him, 
And then they ended up selling him as a slave. That's fine family, isn't it? You know what Joseph might really be able to say at the end of his life? The best day of my life is when that family sold me as a slave and got me out of there. A tox- toxic people. And you, because you see, bad attitudes are as contagious as the measles. And if you hang around them, you'll, you'll catch them. I've, I, we've lost church members because one of their family had a bad attitude, and they would catch the attitude. You, you lose friends because one of their family members has even influenced it. See, oh, Joseph was big enough to get on beyond that. He avoided toxic people in every way that he could. And then there's toxic places. You remember Lot going down to Sodom? Oh, man, if there was a place on the earth that was a wicked place, it was Sodom. It was toxic. And he lost everything. He lost his money. He lost his wife. He lost his daughters. He ended up in deep sin. He ended up drunk because he was in a very, very toxic environment, toxic place. If he had gotten out of it, it might have been a different story. So we've got to be careful about attitude killers. Well, I've got just a couple of minutes. Let me talk to you real quick about how to change your attitude in case you need to. I know nobody does today, but there will be a day when you might want to think about this, huh? Okay? It's three H's. It's the head, the heart, and the habits. So I'll just put it in three H's and help you remember it. The head is the thought life. If I'm going to change my attitude and have this godly servant spirit with my heart given to the Lord and serving Him completely every day as I would like to be able to do, I have to think differently. So it starts with the head, the thought life. The Bible says it so much. 2 Corinthians 10, 5, bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Romans 12 and 2, being transformed by the renewing of your mind. How do you renew your mind? How do you renew the mind? You do it by absorbing the right kind of thoughts. You do it by hanging around the right people, reading the right books, going the right places. The influencers help you to transform your mind. Proverbs 23 and 7, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. And so I control what comes into my mind. People don't think we can do that. They don't think that way. But that's why we, we fill our heart. We fill our mind. We fill our soul with the Word of God. We begin the day with the Bible in our lap and our knees bent at the throne of grace. We fill our mind and absorb the thoughts of God. Be careful of the television programs you watch, of the movies you watch, of the videos that you watch, of the social media chatter that you engage in because it can become very toxic. If we're going to be having the excellent spirit of Daniel last week and Joseph this week, we've got to think noble thoughts. We've got to think godly thoughts. 
Philippians 4, 8 says, think on these things, things that are true, things that are honest or noble, things that are just, things that are pure, things that are lovely, things of good report, virtuous things, praiseworthy things. We've got to think. It begins in the head, and then it moves to the heart, our desires and our motives, because our thinking affects our heart. It affects our desires. When I'm thinking the right thoughts, my desires and my motivations are going to be right. And then lastly, they become habits as I practice them. So much of preaching really doesn't mean a thing. People sit here, even enjoy it, say amen, walk out the door, and it doesn't make a bit of difference in the world. Do you know who it makes a difference for? The people who say, you know what? I've got to work on this. I'm not thinking right. I've got to have the right desires, and I'll do that. I'll I'll get the right desires by thinking the right thoughts. And then I've got to practice those things. I've got to practice those behaviors long enough that they become habitual. The man with the excellent spirit, the man with the positive godly attitude, Joseph, what a remarkable man and what an example for me today. Now, The message I've preached to you was for believers. If you're not saved today, I just want to say, I don't think you can have that attitude. You can have a positive mental attitude like Mr. Peel wrote about, but you can't have that godly attitude that's brought by the Spirit of God indwelling you until you've been saved. And you see, you can sit here and compare yourself with other people, But if you're not a Christian this morning, you have a tremendous need. In fact, I would say to you, you're in grave danger today, grave danger if you're not saved, because you see, you have sinned, and you have broken God's law, and God is a just God, and when we break His law, we will stand before Him in judgment. And I wish I didn't have to say that to you, but that's on virtually every page of the Bible, either stated or implied. And I would say to you today, though, that you don't need to die in your sins. I have good news for you. Christ died for you. He was your substitute. He took your place on the old rugged cross. If you'll turn to him in repentance and in faith, he'll save you. He'll put his spirit within you. And you will have the possibility of having the same kind of spirit and attitude that Joseph had if you'll surrender yourself as Joseph surrendered himself. I would like for you to stand to your feet with me as we close this morning. And I'd ask that every head be bowed and every eye closed. 